We saw last week that the opening verses here in chapter 1, it'd be great if you've got that open, by the way. These opening verses at the beginning of Exodus are a kind of bridge, if you like, that set the story up. In Genesis, looking back, the family of Jacob and his sons who were named here, they all moved to Egypt when they were small. And now we're about to find out what happens to them when they are many and big. Um, you, you'll notice on the program there, perhaps, that I've entitled this talk, The Darkest of Days. Sounds miserable, doesn't it? The Darkest of Days. And the reason for that is that after an initial period of prosperity and calmness, the good times come to an end, and this family, as they grow, experienced relentless persecution and brutal opposition. And we know from elsewhere in the Bible that it lasted for a long time. It doesn't say it here, but they were in Egypt for 400 years. I, chapter 1 couldn't be grimmer. So if you were coming to church to look for some encouragement, this is a, this is a grim chapter. It, it draws us in to sympathize with this family and their bitter, unjust hardship. And it ends, though, on, on a little bit of a cliffhanger, with them being forced by a genocidal maniac to throw their newborn baby boys into the River Nile. We just sang a song there, and the last verse that we sang said, Days of darkness still come o'er me. Sorrow's path I often tread. If ever there was a people who could sing that line, it was Jacob's descendants here in Egypt, wasn't it? What do you do when circumstances are hard and so dark that it feels like hope hangs like a tiny thread? Where do you turn? What do you do? with that experience well if you have a program uh, you'll see that my quite wordy headings today apologies for that <laughs> um, they all begin with the word behind and that is to say what i want us to see first of all is that there is more to this story than meets the eye and what I want us to grasp is what is really going on behind these scenes. You get that? What is really going on behind this initial fruitfulness? What is really going on behind the Egyptian oppression that Pharaoh kind of brings? But my real purpose today is to help us to see what is really going on behind the darkness the darkest of days. What's going on behind the darkness that there is in this whole chapter? 
And I hope that we can see something and learn something about where we can find hope in the darkest of days. So, first of all, let's have a look at the face behind, behind the Israelite fruitfulness. Um, let's look at verses 1 to 7, first of all, um, and see the incredible fruitfulness of this rapidly growing family and what stands behind that. Okay? So, you'll see in verse 5 that Jacob and his 12 sons and their families numbered 70 people in total when they first went to Egypt. Jacob has 12 sons, presumably wives and their kids, 70 people in total. But then verse 6 tells us that Joseph and all of his brothers and all of these people in this young family, they, they all eventually died. Time passes. But look at verse 7. It's almost as if the author is falling over himself to describe their incredible growth. In fact, in this verse, in verse 7, no less than four different words are used to describe their growth. We've got the NIV version in English here, and it says here, number one, they were fruitful. I mean, that would be enough, wouldn't it, to say that? But number two, they multiplied greatly. Number three, they became exceedingly numerous. Number four, if you you didn't know already, the land was filled with them. I think it's fair to say that the author has been to the kind of stationery shop and bought a highlighter pen and done a great big, like, colouring in of this sentence. He wants us to know that they grew. Did you get that? They are very radically, unbelievably almost, fruitful. Now... Here's the thing. If you know something of the Bible, verse 7 might just remind you of something. Don't worry if you don't. But where, where have, this is quite close to the beginning of the Bible, but where have we heard this kind of language before? Let me show you. In the very first chapter of the Bible, actually, we read these words. Genesis chapter 1, this is. This is the story of creation. And the author of Genesis says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Get this. God blessed them and said to them, Be what? Fruitful. And what? Increase in number. Fill the earth. And subdue it. When we read those words from Genesis chapter 1, and then we get to Exodus and compare those words with what the author of Exodus says in verse 7, it is impossible, isn't it, to miss the fact that the author of Exodus intends us to notice that this family is fulfilling God's intention for creation. God commanded humans to be fruitful and to grow. But why? Why did God give that command? God commanded humans to be fruitful and to grow so that they would reflect the glory of God throughout all creation. 
That was their task. Created in the image of a glorious God, their task was to multiply and be fruitful and to spread the knowledge of the glory of God in every part of creation. This is really important. God desires that his great glory would be known and enjoyed and seen and adored by everyone and that all creation would live under the life-giving, joy-bringing, awe-inspiring glory of God. So God says to them, be fruitful. But the fruitfulness in verse 7 here actually represents even more than that. that that's good. But you will know that this original intention quickly fell apart. And a poisonous evil infected human hearts. And instead of going out and making a name for God, everywhere they went, humans only wanted to make a name for themselves. But in this darkness we begin to see that God is not just glorious, he's also good. He purposed to recreate within this rebellious world a new family. And that this family would know him and enjoy him and make his glory and goodness known in a dark world. This family would be a light in this dark world. So, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls one pagan man called Abraham, and he makes the most mind-blowing promise to him. The words will appear on the screen here. God says to Abraham, leave your country, your people and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. At this point, he didn't even tell Abraham where he was going. <laughs> And get this, God says to him, I will make you into a great nation. That's fruitfulness. That's growth, isn't it? I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And get this too, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's goodness. And that the reason I describe this as goodness is because now we begin to see through God promising Abraham these amazing things that this is a God who is kind and loving and faithful to every promise that he makes. So in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 1, when we read of their massive fruitfulness with this big highlighter pen through it, what we're meant to see what is behind that, the reason they grow is because under God's blessing, they're fulfilling God's promise at creation that humans would reflect his glory and also his later promise to Abraham 
that this family would go on to reveal God's goodness to, to the world. At the beginning of Exodus here, what we have is this family, Abraham's grown family, fulfilling their destiny. These are the people God has called. They're living in the place that God told them to go to and brought them to. And we find them flourishing and doing exactly what God intends them to do. Now, once we appreciate that background, that that's what's behind verse 7, that throws a great deal of light, doesn't it, on what Pharaoh then does in the rest of this chapter. So let's see next what is behind the Egyptian oppression. The first thing that I want you to notice is the ignorance of people at, at this point. When I say ignorant, I'm not being rude. <laughs> they're, they're, what I mean is there are things that they don't know. They're ignorant of. Look at verse 8. We're told that a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. You could translate that phrase, a new king who did not know Joseph. Hundreds of years before, Joseph had come to Egypt and helped this nation endure a global famine. This new pharaoh, this new king, he, he knows nothing of that history. He knows nothing of the friendliness and harmony that had originally existed between this family and the Egyptians. All of it was consigned to the dustbin of history. No one remembered the past. It's amazing, isn't it, how the passing of successive generations can erase important knowledge. People forget. I think it's hard to tell as well from this chapter in the early part of Exodus whether the Israelites themselves remember God. It seems significant to me that God is barely mentioned in the first two chapters of Exodus. And when God does show up later in chapter 3 and beyond, it's as if the Israelites kind of wake up. And it's almost like, ah, ah. It's, it's almost like they suddenly, I, I remember something about this. <laughs> so, somewhere buried deep in their consciousness is this memory of a God somewhere. I think my granddad might have told me about this maybe when I was little. It's kind of there lurking in the background. And, they, and they, they, it feels like they wake up to it. But alongside this ignorance of God, this forgetfulness, if you like, of God, the next thing to notice is the fear that this Israelite growth causes this new Pharaoh. Verse 9 is a great example of what we would call today othering. Are you familiar with the concept of othering? You know, in his little speech in verse 9, he, he descends into this, he describes a situation as like us over here and them over there you know there's the the other the othering of the of the israelites he said to his people we 
must deal shrewdly with them or they will become too numerous and if war breaks out they will join our enemies and fight against us it's divisive language isn't it them and us and the reference there in verse 9 to war and enemies is interesting what one thing that strikes me is if Pharaoh hated these Israelites so much, it does raise the question, why did he not just let them go? <laughs> Hate you, get lost, good riddance. Why, why does he not just let them go? I, I think Pharaoh is threatened. He's, he's become paranoid. And this family has become too big to be allowed to leave but they're also now too big to stay. So Pharaoh dreams up a campaign that escalates in three stages. Pharaoh's plan A is to enslave them. And they find themselves serving a ruthless taskmaster. I was reading up on this and apparently brick-making was a terrible business. Factories would be set up, almost like fortresses, a kind of prison, partly to stop thieves getting in and nicking the bricks. But the other thing, of course, is to stop the slaves who were making them from escaping. Imagine the baking hot sun. The air thick with dust and dirt. Hauling water from the river, filling moulds with wet clay. Carrying them on their heads perhaps to dry in rows in the hot sun. And then carrying them back to be fired in roasting hot kilns. And on top of all this, masters who goaded them. And thrashed them and beat them. It was filthy, hot, heavy, thankless labour that no doubt produced burnt, cracked skin, dust-filled lungs, bent backs, and broken spirits. We highlighted the author's Marker pen, colourful language in verse 7. But the same thing happens. Exactly the same kind of language is there in verse 13 and 14, describing their hardship too. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with hard labour. And in all this hard labour, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly you say oh the author again underlines this later brutality was as great as their earlier growth had been some writers do see in this chapter a little picture of the world at large it's almost as if israel's plight here it's like a little miniature version of how the world, the whole world seems to be created to be fruitful for God, 
but instead now apparently ignorant of him, they find themselves serving a cruel tyrant in great affliction. What happens to them is like a microcosm of the world at large. Amazingly, though, this cruel treatment didn't work. Instead of preventing the Israelites from growing, they, they only grew all the more. And so Pharaoh re resorts to a plan B. In verses 15 and 16, he commands the midwives to save all the baby girls who were born and to kill all the newborn baby boys. Even this doesn't work. And so Pharaoh conjures up a plan C. And the chapter ends there in verse 22. With Pharaoh forcing all Israelite families to throw their newborn baby boys into the river Nile. Oppression followed by genocide. Chapter 1 here describes ignorance, slavery and death. Now, we are no doubt obviously aware of examples in human history, some of them recent ones, of ethnic cruelty. But there is more to this situation than meets the eye. What the author is doing here is showing us that Pharaoh is not just fighting an ethnic uprising here. What he's actually doing is fighting against God. If the Israelites are growing fruitfully in a way that is designed to fulfill God's purposes, to spread his glory and goodness, what Pharaoh is doing when he enslaves them is ultimately defying God. I, I said last week that Pharaoh is like a serpent-like king. He's no different to the serpent in the Garden of Eden in a sense. He resents God's people he resists God's plan and he tries his hardest to frustrate God's good purposes. You get that? Pharaoh becomes a kind of anti-God, anti-creation figure. God intends to bless the world through this family and Pharaoh responds by enslaving and trying to kill them. And if Pharaoh succeeds here, if Exodus chapter 1 was the end of the story and we didn't have the rest of the Bible, God's plan to bless the world through this family fails and the darkness wins. I think that's one of the reasons why there's such a grim cliffhanger at the end of chapter 1. We will get to chapter 2 and beyond next week. But the throwing of the baby boys into River Nile, it's like the gruesome climax of the chapter and the catalyst for the arrival of the delivery, uh, the, the deliverer in chapter 2, isn't it? So, here, here's what I'm trying to say. Behind the Israelite fruitfulness are God's promises of glory and goodness for the world. And behind Pharaoh's oppression is a dark defiance of God fueled by ignorance and fear. You see that? So, thirdly, Let's try and see what's behind what I've called the unexplained darkness. I've called it unexplained darkness because 
I think one of the very striking things about this narrative is that at no point, at no point either before or during or after, are these dark days ever really explained. Imagine what it must have felt like to live through these days. This is the family of God's promise. These, in a sense, are God's people. And yet some of them have been born and lived and died during this period of brutal slavery. And I want to underline, there's no hint here in the narrative that they've done anything wrong. That we, we might say they haven't somehow missed God's guidance in their lives and this is their own fault. God told Jacob to go to Egypt. They are exactly where God told them to be. They haven't missed something here. And yet these precious ones live through a time where their circumstances are heartbreakingly painful. And there's no word from heaven. For 400 years. Now, we, we know the end of the story, but I, don't, I want you to feel the tension in this chapter before we rush forward too quickly. We mustn't gloss over how unspeakably hard this must have been. And doesn't it make us want to cry out like they must have cried out, Why? Why? Could God not have stopped this? And why did he let it go on for so long? And why does it have to be so painfully difficult? Why? Why? Even when the promised rescue came, no explanation was ever given to them for these years of struggle. This, this has made me cry, and I'm really determined not to cry. <laughs> I want to say some important things to you here. If you are ever tempted to think that life is meant to be easy, this chapter in the Bible here alone is enough to demolish that idea, isn't it? Difficulties without any explanation. Adversity with no obvious purpose. Persecution with no apparent protection. None of this fits with our Western notions of comfort and our expectations of it. But I want to say to you, it does fit with the rest of the Bible. In the New Testament, a disciple of Peter writes this to Christian believers in the first century. 1 Peter chapter 4. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised at the painful trial, you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. In the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas did a preaching tour. Imagine that, preaching tour. 
They visited a number of cities. It says in Acts chapter 14, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. And what did they teach them? Can you imagine a Christian conference with this as the title? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You wouldn't get many people paying to go to a conference like that, would you? That was their preaching tour. To encourage them and to strengthen them to remain true to the faith. It reminds me of two of Jesus. Who not only suffered himself but was realistic and taught his disciples his last words in John chapter 16 in the Last Supper. He said to them, in this world you will have what? Trouble. And then perhaps with a twinkle in his eye, he said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. One writer that I love says this, Exodus 1 reveals the mystery of divine government of history. Whether on a national, domestic or individual level, the great and loving God is in control and because he is truly sovereign, he works out his purposes in his way, not ours. He offers no explanations, but he grants his people a sufficient insight into his ways and into his character and his intentions and his changeless faithfulness so that however dark the day, they can live by faith and be sustained by hope. So, our third question is, what is behind this unexplained darkness? Where are the signs of hope here? And what do they point us to? So, I want you to notice three things. You'll see them on the program there. The first thing is, I want you to notice the success of God's plans in spite of the darkness. And one of the ways we see this in this chapter is that the author is very keen, falling over himself again, to point out that everything that is thrown at God here doesn't work. <laughs> Look at verse 12. Pharaoh brutally enslaves these people. Verse 12 says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. He does his best. That's why Pharaoh escalates things. He can't understand it. The same thing happens with Pharaoh's plan B. Look at verse 20. Not only does God continue to increase the people, but the midwives themselves are rewarded by God for their courage too. Despite the darkness... Despite all that an evil, wicked king can throw at them, God's promises, it turns out that God's promises do prevail. And there's some hope in that, isn't there? Even when evil does its absolute worst, it never wins. We're not given to understand why it's so hard, but we can know that God will achieve all of his purposes in spite of the darkness. In fact, we begin to see, we'll see more of this next week, 
that God somehow even uses the evil and turns it to his own ends to progress his own plans. The second thing to see here is the surprise of God's ways within the darkness. You have to love the courage of these two midwives. Given the numbers of the Israelites, some commentators think that these two midwives were like, only having two isn't enough. These two are like the chief midwives with other midwives working under them. They're the only people, apart from Jacob's family at the start, they're the only people named in this part of the story. And the author tells us that they feared God more than Pharaoh. And they defied a brutal king. Let's make no mistake here. God commands us not to lie. But this tyrant here has surely forfeited the right to the truth by his reign of terror. But it does make me smile wryly when I read verse 19 because the, the narrative doesn't really say that they lied and it's possible that verse 19 was true. But, uh, but it makes you wonder whether they're gently mocking Pharaoh. You know, oh, Pharaoh, the Israelite women are more vigorous than the Egyptian ones. And when we get there, the kids are born. <laughs> what can you do? It's like, you, you, it's, I don't know. Whether it's, there's a humor in that. They're, they're not only full of courage here, but they're almost mocking this brutal tyrant. Even in the darkest of places, I want to say to you that God has his midwives. I, I wonder whether some of you might be one of those midwives. Brutal, seemingly unconquerable king. God has his Midwives. The surprising irony is that this powerful king is confounded by courageous and compassionate women. He wants to get rid of all the males so they don't grow up and fight. And the irony is it's actually the women who bring about his downfall. Isn't that delicious? The little people resist the powerful it's the weak who hold out against the strong. I've clocked that in the first two chapters here, all the men are either fighting, arguing, enslaving, or being enslaved. And it's the women. Shifra, Pur, Jochebed, Moses' mum. Miriam, Moses' sister, and even Pharaoh's own daughter, who, having grown up in a genocidal maniac's house, seems to show compassion and tenderness when she sees a Hebrew baby in a basket in the river. But that's for next week. Verse 8 speaks of this new king coming to power. What a phrase that is, and what a terrible power he wielded. But it seems that even in the darkest of days... God turns things upside down by so arranging things 
that despite their power, the strong lose, and despite their apparent weakness, the faithful win. But there's a third thing, and it's this, the clarity that God forges through the darkness. So there's another great irony here in that Pharaoh's actions actually only serve to work against him. And the darkness that he tries to inflict only serves to bring light. What do I mean by that? Well, this happens, I think, in two ways here. Think about this. The first thing that happens is that their suffering, the suffering of these Israelites in Egypt, I think only serves to bond them and to forge their identity as a people. They don't yet know fully that they're the people of God, but their suffering, Pharaoh inflicts suffering. Imagine if Pharaoh had left them alone. You would understand if they'd gradually over 400 years been integrated into an Egyptian way of life. They might have forgotten their roots and each generation become increasingly comfortable and at home. So instead of overpowering and weakening them, the suffering that Pharaoh inflicts only serves to strengthen their identity as a separate people to the Egyptians. Backfires. But secondly, these long years of slavery surely only serve to develop too within them a deep longing for freedom. Preventing their freedom only served to make them long for it all the more. It's as if everything that Pharaoh throws at them clarifies what is really important. God uses the darkness in a mysterious way to clarify what's really important. He forges their identity and he deepens their longing for release. I, I don't know if this is stretching it, but I, I was reminded as I was preparing of the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in the Gospels. The son goes off with all his father's cash. He has an absolute blast. Loads of mates, loads of fun. And while the money rolls, the good times roll too. And it's not until he's starving in the pigsty that he comes to his senses and realizes what he's done. What he's done to his dad, what he's lost. When he was comfortable, he was complacent, but his suffering seemed to sober him up and wake him up in a way that his previous success hadn't been able to. You get that kind of, I don't know if I'm stretching it. If I am, you can scratch that. But it, su- suffering, sharpens us in a way that comfort doesn't. So, this chapter is carefully designed to evoke a lot of responses. The reality of injustice here disturbs us. The weak overcoming the powerful delights us. The suffering of God's precious people puzzles us. And yet, in it all, the sovereign care of God surely encourages us but there is still another story behind this one 
And I, I said earlier, didn't I, that this story is the story of the world in miniature. The reality of a glorious God who intends to bless the world and the powers of darkness that oppose him. And I want to suggest to you that ultimately, in this dark world, it is the cross, actually, of Jesus that towers as a light above the world's darkness and like a magnet draws us. And the reason I frame these three signs of hope like this is because I think they all point us to the cross. Think of this, despite the dark centuries of human history, God's plans have been delivered to absolute perfection on exactly the right day, in exactly the right place. God had always planned to save sinners through the cross where his beloved son dies. And despite the darkness in the world, God brings that about. And of course, this story that we're looking at in Exodus is part of that larger story because as we've already said, if Pharaoh had successfully crushed Israel here, Jesus would never have been born later. <coughs> Pharaoh tried to fight God's plans, but he failed and God's purposes prevailed and they have done ever since then and they would eventually climax at the cross. But second, in the darkness of the cross, there's also great irony and surprise, surely in the fact that the one who dies actually wins. Where in the world? Who in the world could have invented that? The human weakness of the cross actually conquers every power of darkness. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Colossians, these words, chapter 2, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to his cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Here, here's the thing. The powers of darkness thought they'd won when they brought Jesus to the cross. They thought they'd done away with him. And isn't it staggering that the cross becomes the very means by which God saves sinners? The powerful wicked did their best and the weakness of the cross totally undid them. And finally, the cross forges tremendous clarity too, doesn't it? I, I want to say that everything comes into focus at the cross. The seriousness of our human sin. The infinite mercy and kindness of God. The fact that the eternal creator God entered time and space and took on our human flesh in order to become our mighty savior. Jesus entered the deepest darkness to set us free from slavery and death. And it's at the cross where beautiful, 
clarifying, everlasting light truly dawns. I wanted to close with one final comparison that struck me very powerfully in these last few weeks. You know that Israel is described as the Son of God, precious to God. And we could compare Israel's experience here with that of Jesus, the Son of God. These Israelites were brutalized in this chapter. They longed for relief. And eventually God did hear their cries and rescued them and brought them out brought them even to the promised land. But you know when, when the Son of God was later brutalized on the darkest of days, when he faced the terrible agony of the cross and Matthew's gospel tells us that he cried out there, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Exodus chapter 1, God's people needed a saviour, but Jesus came to be the saviour. In other words, Jesus walked willingly into the darkest day, a day on which he was separated from his father so that you and I would never have to be. I think one of my greatest pastoral burdens for all of you is how to help you, all of you, to live in a world where things are hard. How do we live in a world that is dark? Exodus chapter 1 surely reminds us that being one of God's people isn't an automatic free pass that insulates us against trouble and difficulties. But I want to remind you, dear friends, that you can look to the cross and you can remember this. God is present in the darkness of this world to work out his purposes. You can trust him and his sovereign care. And secondly, God will provide in the darkness even a saviour. So do not despair. And know this, thirdly, that God will ultimately prevail over the darkness. So as we've already sunk, wait for him. Wait for him patiently to bring all things to fruition. And let us never forget either that as a church what is our great task as a church as a church family with all our frailties living in a dark world our great task is to reflect God's glory and to show his goodness in a dark world we sung that line earlier this one days of darkness still come o'er me Sorrow's path I often tread. 
But because of the cross of the Lord Jesus, we can also sing the line that followed it. But the Savior still is with me. In the darkness, by his hand, I'm safely let. May we know the truth of that on our dark days and in our good days and every day. Amen.